This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 1st, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, staff writer Jocelyn Kaiser discusses whole genome sequencing for newborns, the upsides and the downsides. Also, we have three authors of a series of vignettes about active learning, Nesra Yanir, Yuko Munakata, and Louis Delorier. Research shows lecturing feels more educational, but actually isn't teaching students more. Why isn't active learning the dominant model these days? Today, most newborns get some biochemical screens of their blood as a matter of course. Some say we should be screening their whole genomes, but this isn't standard anywhere yet. Whole genome sequencing is a much more comprehensive look at a baby maybe too comprehensive. This Week in Science, staff writer Jocelyn Kaiser takes us through the debate on whole genome screening of newborns and what the research has revealed about the pros and cons. Hi, Jocelyn. Hi, Sarah. So when my baby was born, she had to have her foot pricked, which I hated. And they took this, uh, these little smears of blood and looked for biochemical markers of certain diseases like PKU, which is treatable if caught early. These biochemical tests are pretty much the standard in many places these days, right? That's right. Every state and many, many countries do the screening too. They're looking like for some sort of change that you can see in the blood, some biochemical that reflects that the child has some sort of metabolic disorder that could be treated early to uh, prevent any symptoms. How would whole genome sequencing be different? By sequencing the entire genome, you could instead of screening for maybe 30, 50, 70 diseases as researchers do now, you could screen for hundreds of diseases, even thousands. It wouldn't be 100% accurate, but it would sort of flag that the child might have that disease. It also could tell you about genes that could tell you something about the child's health later in life, like whether they'd be susceptible to cancer as an adult. Could whole genome sequencing replace the biochemical screens we're talking about? The sequencing isn't perfect. It misses some parts of the genome. There are mutations that scientists don't really understand, and so they sort of have to throw them out because they don't know if they cause disease or not. If you did want to use it, you would have to keep doing the biochemical screening too. This is somewhat like the case you write about in your story. 
This little girl, Cora, was involved in the BabySeq project. This is a whole genome screening project. And she needed genomic screening and then also biochemical testing. She got the standard biochemical screening, but the result was ambiguous. The first test showed she might have this metabolic disorder. A second test found she didn't have this elevated enzyme level that would indicate the disorder. And then genome screening found that she did have mutations that cause a disorder, a mild form of it, which is why the biochemical test wasn't definitively picking it up. And it was treatable. And it was treatable. All she has to do is take a vitamin each day. Is it a lot more money to do whole genome sequencing? Right now, standard screening is no more than a couple hundred dollars. Genome screening could be $900, maybe less, to sequence the genome, but then someone has to analyze it, and the costs there really depend on how much analysis is done. And it might not be a replacement, but an addition. That's right. It sounds like there are some problems with whole genome sequencing, that it's not as exact as we would want, and there are certain mutations or variations of the genome we're just not going to understand, but what are some of the big gains that we get from looking at the whole genome? The big gains would be that you could screen for many more childhood diseases, some of them preventable with something like a vitamin or a more extensive kind of treatment. It might take a gene therapy, but it would at least tell parents that their child may have this disorder. Even if it's not treatable, some parents say they want to know if their child's going to have some sort of serious disorder within a few years so that they could kind of prepare for it. We've been talking mostly about whole genome screening at a population level, just looking at every baby that comes up. But this has been used in a much more specific way in very, very ill infants. And that seems to have been very useful. These are really sick babies in um, intensive care. And they do a whole genome sequence and they don't just look for a bunch of known disease mutations. They actually do a much more extensive analysis of the genome to find mutations that may explain the baby's disease that normally you might not even have looked for these genes because maybe you didn't even know it causes disease, but they find some mutation that looks abnormal. If it, the gene is doing something and that may explain the disease, then, then they may have found why the baby's so sick and in intensive care. When genome sequencing was used to try to figure out what was going on with these very sick babies in intensive care, in roughly 36% of over 1,800 seriously ill children, the researchers were able to find a mutation that seemed to explain their illness. In these babies that are very sick and you want to use whole genome sequencing to find out what's wrong with them and possibly treat them, seems pretty clear-cut. But when you get to whole genome screening of every baby, the ethical questions start to come in. Can you talk about some of those issues? One of the big ones is as you kind of expand the number of diseases that you're screening for, you're going to start adding diseases where it's not so clear whether the mutation is going to cause disease in every baby who has it. So that could create the problem that parents are told, well, your baby has this mutation may or may not develop this disease. And then they spend years watching for it and worrying for it, maybe doing testing when the baby never gets sick. Another problem is if you sequence the baby's entire genome, you store that in a database somewhere, what happens to that genome? Who's going to look at it later on? Is it going to be part of some researchers going to be looking at it and the, and the kid doesn't even know it? How are they going to feel when they grow up and they find out, oh, my whole genome is in this database that people are, are looking at for research studies? Parents are mixed about this. Obviously, if you find out your kid is sick and this is how you get diagnosed and treated, yay, but not every parent wants to know this. Yeah, that's right. There's one um, example that is mentioned in the story. There was a father who's his son had, was born with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is 
there's some experimental treatments. It's kind of considered an untreatable disease right now, but it doesn't show up until a few years into life. And he said that he actually is glad he didn't know for the first four years that his baby had this because they could just not worry about it and just enjoy those years. You spend some time in the story talking about these differences between the U.S. and the U.K., and how the UK is somewhat set up for whole genome sequencing because of the 100,000 Genomes Project. How is that helping? If you talk to the um, researcher who led that study, Robert Green, he thinks the reason it was so low is partly because of the way the study was set up and the questions that the ethics board wanted to be put to the parents to ask them if they're interested in participating. And one kind of caveat with their results is that almost all the parents were kind of well-educated, most of them were white. And so he's now launching another study that is going to go into diverse neighborhoods or places to try to recruit parents and hopefully get a sample that's more representative of the population. And what will they be looking at in that study? They're going to try to recruit 500 babies. I think it's basically a similar study, probably looking at a similar number of genes. But I think that the main objective is to get a more diverse group. They want to find out how not just white parents feel about having their babies genome sequenced. Is the plan to tell parents there's a problem if some genetic finding is not treatable? At the moment, I think as researchers think about doing this, at least on a smaller scale, maybe looking for hundreds of genes, not 2,000 genes, they want to start with treatable diseases, actionable diseases. Now, there is some debate about what that means exactly. Does treatable mean it's curable? I'd say most of these diseases are not curable. Some of them can be prevented, like the disease Cora had or PKU. Others, there's some treatment, but it doesn't mean the child's going to be, you know, completely normal. With type 1 diabetes, you go to training, right? You learn how to handle the disease. You get, you get your team together to help support the kid, that kind of stuff. Exactly. You spend some time in the story talking about some differences between how this is being approached in the UK and in the US. The UK is kind of set up to do this. They have the, what is it, 100,000 Genome Project to depend on the structure that was built for that. In the UK, they've been moving ahead with big studies using um, genomics for many years. And one study that they did over the past decade called the 100,000 Genomes, as you said, sequenced 100,000 genomes of people with cancer or rare diseases. And as part of that, they have these labs spread around the country. They have a database where they can store these genomes, which are considered research genomes for now. So if they launch, as they're planning to do, a big newborn genome pilot project, they've got the places to do it, to sequence the genomes. They've got a place to put them. But in the U.S., things are a little bit different. One big difference is in the U.K., these labs and these, this whole sort of process is part of their national health system. And the U.S. does not have a national health system. It's not obvious if you sequenced every newborn genome, like, where would you put it? There's no central database. How would you make sure it became part of their health records if that's what you wanted to do? I mean, what about people who don't have health insurance or, you know, a regular health care provider? What about the support for giving these results to people? You don't really want the situation where you pay for your genome sequencing online and you get something in the mail and that's your deal. You just read that. You don't want that for your infant. That's right. If you're going to screen every baby and some of them are going to have a gene for some serious disorder, they've got to be able to get treatment for it and counseling. And so that's another, another big question in the U.S. How would you make sure that that was available? Is the U.K. considering rolling out whole genome sequencing for all infants? 
So what they're talking about doing, they recently had a big public consultation, which is kind of like a big focus group where they gathered opinions from a diverse set of people about how they'd feel about it. And they found support for doing newborn genome sequencing. Now, they're not ready to do it on a national scale yet. Instead, they want to launch a big pilot project, which they're now planning, but it potentially could enroll up to 200,000 babies over several years. Is anyone making the economical argument that, oh, we just sequence all these babies and we save money in the end because we're treating them and they're not going to be super sick for a big part of their lives? Of course, people talk about the economics, even though it's not in my story. First of all, the people who are doing the babies in intensive care, they have done that analysis and they have shown that it definitely pays off because if the baby's born with a very serious disease and isn't treated, costs can be just enormous to the healthcare system. Now in the UK, they are thinking about exactly that, what the cost benefit analysis would be as they start to plan this pilot project. Like how many diseases you're going to test for and what the cost savings will be if those diseases are caught early. So that's one thing I think they're hoping their pilot project will demonstrate is that the benefits outweigh the cost. So BabySeq is in the U.S., right? Are there many other whole genome sequencing for infant screening projects going on here? There's a project in planning in North Carolina that would test for over 100 diseases. The list could get longer using sequencing and that could get underway next year. And then there's another one in New York State. They're adding only about 14 diseases to what's already screened for there, but these include diseases that don't have a treatment yet, that are very serious, but they have a some clinical trial is testing a possible treatment, and they want to see if they pick up these diseases, if the kids get an early treatment, and if the, you know, the bottom line is that it was worth catching it early. What about these risks for later in life problems like heart disease or cancer? Is any of these research teams looking to see how that works out, follow these infants for a really long time? One thing BabySeq did look at, they found a couple kids who had genes that make you prone to breast cancer. One family they asked, would you like to know this information? I guess they didn't tell them what it was. Would you like to know about adult diseases? And the family did want to know about it. And, you know, that can be really important because it means this gene is not just in their baby. It means it's in their family. And they also made the argument that it's in the baby's best interest for the family to know about it because what if the mom is the one who carries the gene and she develops breast cancer and isn't that baby's life going to be better if the mom knows it? So in the UK, because these genomes are going to go into this research database with the parents' permission, which is linked to the the child's medical records, and because they have this healthcare system where that medical record is there for their lifetime, potentially they could draw on that genome information later in the child's life to help the doctors or whoever's treating that person know that they may be prone to breast cancer or heart disease or something like that. Thanks, Jocelyn. You're welcome, Sarah. Jocelyn Kaiser is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an exploration of active learning in education and why the pandemic was a useful experimental setting for discovering active learning's benefits. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. 
Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. If you were a parent of a school-aged child in 2020, you might have gotten a peek inside the classroom, unavailable to you most years. But what exactly were we looking at? Instead of collaborations, explorations that we see with active learning, many of us witnessed passive lecture-style teaching. Perhaps this is a result of remote learning. I get it. It's very difficult to do. But this week in science, we have a series of vignettes that really emphasizes how important active learning is for science. First, we have Yuko Munakata. She's a professor in the Department of Psychology and Center for Mind and Brain at the University of California, Davis. Hi, Yuko. Hi, Sarah. The piece you contributed to this series of vignettes, it links active learning, this inquiry-based learning, this exploration, with executive function. So what is executive function in this context? Executive function refers to these skills that we bring to hard problems. So when we need to plan ahead, when we need to focus, when there's all kinds of things happening around us, um, when we need to shift flexibly from doing one thing, say, doing our taxes, and then we need to shift to cooking dinner, and, and when we need to stop ourselves from doing things that might be really compelling. So stop checking Facebook or looking at cat videos and focus on something that needs to get done. All those kinds of goal-directed behaviors fall under this umbrella of executive function. I guess I can see why that might be important for active learning. Being able to go down a path and explore means you kind of have to be in charge of what you're doing and what you're thinking about. Exactly. Right. So it's a situation where you're not just trying to do this exact thing that you've been told. You're trying to manage all those thoughts and actions and reach the goal yourself. Mm -hmm. The big question that you raise in your contribution here is how much structure do students need? If active learning includes exploring and engaging, how structured does the learning process need to be if they're supposed to be self-directed? Yeah, so this is a big question and a big debate. And I think something that a lot of parents really wonder about for their kids. And I experienced this myself as a parent when I recognized that they were in many more structured activities than I had been as a kid without me necessarily intending that. It's just something that has changed across time uh, with the expectations for what kids should be doing. You mean here's soccer, here's lessons, not go get on your bike and get lost for a couple hours activities that are structured by adults versus just go out and come home at dinner. So that's a, a big contrast and a big change in society that could have a big impact on how kids develop. Um, and there have been a lot of debates and a lot of speculation, but not a lot of evidence. So that's where we came in to ask, what are the links between kids' time spent in structured activities versus less structured activities and how they think and act? And you were able to actually use some of the things that happened during the pandemic and students' regular learning being disrupted to investigate this? We were. We've conducted a number of different studies. This one that you just referred to was actually done by Professor Sabine Doble and people from her lab. And they took advantage of the fact that kids were spending time at home and they could collect detailed information about how they were spending time from their parents and then look at how that was associated with their executive functioning. And they found that these kids at home during the pandemic showed better executive functioning if they had more time in these less structured activities. 
That's a bit surprising. Do you think that that could also be shown for schools, the school setting? So there's evidence like that in Montessori schools. In those settings, kids have this less structured situation where they're able to make many choices, follow their own interests, and engage in play within the school environment. And there's some evidence that suggests that Montessori schooling improves executive functioning relative to standard schooling. How do we know that these kids weren't just prone to independent play and less structured time because their executive function was there for them? That is something that's very hard to address with studies that look at just one slice in time. But we recently have a new study that follows kids across time. And that study shows that the amount of time that kids spend in structured activities at age four predicts their executive functioning down the road at age seven. And that kind of study tracking kids across time highlights the possibility that that early experience is causing this development of executive functioning. How should we value executive functioning? Is this something that more of it is good for us? And if you have it highly developed at age seven, does that influence you down the line? Is there a big advantage to having a lot of it early on? There are definite advantages to having executive function that have been demonstrated by showing that kids with better executive function show all kinds of better outcomes later in life, in their academic outcomes, in their financial outcomes, in friendships. Many, many outcomes suggest that having good executive functioning is extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. So all we have to do is back off our kids. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, I want to emphasize that there's also this potential risk of putting too much on developing executive functioning and trying to do that too early because having lower executive functioning early in life could be advantageous for kids in learning about all kinds of things about the world. Rather than coming in and trying to solve all these problems and focusing on all kinds of goals, they're doing this important work of taking in information about the world and learning about their environment and their culture and everything around them. And so, yes, executive functioning is adaptive, but I would caution against trying to rush it. Thank you so much, Yuko. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Next, we have an example of an active learning platform. Nesra Yanir is faculty at Carnegie Mellon University. She wrote about an AI-guided mixed reality system called Nerilla. Hi, Nesra. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. In your piece, you mentioned the struggle uh, to get digital natives into active learning. What are some of the reasons this is challenging? With this current generation, it's they're seeing a lot of screens in their everyday lives and their attention spans are getting lower. So we need ways to engage them, like using engaging technologies, but also need technologies that are incorporated into the physical world. So they're not being isolated, but they're also actively exploring things and thinking about things rather than just pressing buttons on a screen. So, yeah, I think for this current generation, it is really important to find novel ways to engage these kids so that they're actively exploring STEM concepts, but also being excited and engaged to um, incorporate that into their lives later on. This gets to Norilla, which is something that you work on. You're the inventor of. This is a mixed reality platform for the classroom. How does it work? 
The idea is children are performing and interpreting real-world experiments using any given physical apparatus, such as an earthquake table, ramps, or a balance scale. And we have this specialized artificial intelligence computer vision algorithms that track what they're doing in the physical world and provide personalized adaptive feedback to guide them as they're doing discoveries in the real world. Are they wearing goggles to look at a table, like an earthquake table, or are they just listening to feedback from an AI that's looking What's happening? (laughs) They do not have to wear any goggles or anything. So it's integrated into their real world experience. We have like uh, an earthquake table, for example, and there's a there's a camera that tracks what they're doing and uh, as they're doing experiments, and it gives them personalized feedback using a tablet and also a display screen. So there's this gorilla character, for example, an engaging character that asks them questions to make a prediction about what's going to happen when the table shakes. So which of these towers do you think will fall first? And then they can make a prediction about what's going to happen. And once one of the towers fall, the camera tracks what happened and our AI computer vision algorithm gives them feedback about if their prediction was right or wrong and helps them understand the reasons why. And then it starts giving them different building challenges. The idea is they're doing physical exploration, but there's also this interactive guidance that helps them think and understand the underlying principles. Is it a big improvement to have students interacting with an AI rather than just following steps, more like a video game that's guiding them through something that they're doing in the physical world? Yeah, so we have been conducting um, a lot of controlled experiments to see how having this type of mixed reality AI physical interaction improves their learning compared to an on-screen version that's only on a computer or a tablet screen. And Our research has demonstrated that students learn five times more with these AI-supported mixed reality interactions compared to a tightly matched screen-based interaction on a computer or a tablet screen. And also children enjoy these AI-supported physical interactions significantly more compared to solely screen-based interactions. So how does it compare with having children explore with only physical materials, which happens in a lot of the museum exhibits or maker spaces currently? Our experiments have demonstrated that not just any active learning works. For example, when we turn off the system's intelligence guidance so that the students are freely performing tower building activities on their own, they still enjoy it, but they learn far less. And when they have this AI guidance on top of physical experimentation, they learn and understand the concepts significantly better and can also apply them to a real world building and engineering task. Wow. How easy would this be to integrate into schools? Not all of the schools have a lot of resources. Currently, our intelligence science stations are being used by thousands of children from diverse backgrounds in museums, schools, Head Start programs, boys and girls clubs, and other informal and formal learning settings. A lot of schools have been uh, creating these makerspaces, STEAM labs, or they're also transforming their libraries into these types of media centers, or sometimes they call them imagination stations. So um, yeah, there are a lot of ways to transform your space. And we provide everything that's necessary from these stations to other lesson plans and activities they could be doing at the same time. And a lot of the conversations we've had with teachers, they have told us that they don't have a science background. 
that they really want to teach science. So they think having this type of interactive system that guides them together with the children is really useful. And it also becomes a model for their teaching in other contexts as well. For example, some teachers told us that they start asking more open-ended questions to children, helping them understand the reasons why rather than giving away the answers after they started using these intelligence stations in their classrooms. Thank you, Nezra. Thank you so much, Sarah. If active learning is so amazing, why isn't everyone from kindergarten teachers to grad school professors doing it? Louis Delorier is a senior preceptor in the Department of Physics and the director of science teaching and learning at Harvard University. He wrote about why lectures still linger, and he talks about some experiments showing why they shouldn't. Hi, Louis. Hello. Why is lecturing still this stock approach for so many teachers? In short, I think it's cognitive dissonance that uh, instructors have. They tell me all the time, they say, look, I had uh, wonderful lectures. Some of them were wonderful, and I learned a lot from these lectures. They're basically telling me that they had this cognitive bias, this feeling of learning that we measure, and that was very strong for them. So that's why there's this cognitive dissonance that the new research seems to say, no, you weren't learning. Can you describe some of these experiments that you mentioned in your piece that show this so clearly? Basically, we wanted to see if students' perceptions of learning in the classroom, if those are affected by the amount and intensity of active learning. So more specifically, we wanted to see what happens to these perceptions when we compare the most effective and intense types of active learning to traditional lectures that are especially clear and smooth. Because if I may say here, uh, Sarah, students and everyone for that matter really enjoy, really like those well-presented traditional lectures. And in fact, that's why in large part, superstar lecturers routinely get the highest student evaluations. This is an issue. So the question we're trying to answer is, could it be that these perceptions of learning are sometimes inaccurate or they're misleading? What students take away, what they learn is different than their perception of how much learning they did. Yeah. And that's for everyone, by the way. So that's a very well-known phenomenon, the phenomenon of feeling of learning from memory research. Yeah, that sometimes when information comes at you and it's especially smooth, <laughs> I don't know what word to use. Well presented, it, you're following along, you're enjoying this process of getting from fact to fact, but you're going to not remember it? Yeah, well, let's put it this way. We use a smoothness or the word that psychologists use this fluency, we use a degree of fluency as a very powerful metacognitive cue, basically, as a cue to tell us, okay, I think I'm getting this. I think I'm learning something from someone's directions to go to a store or something like that. <laughs> I never do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like this idea that you can separate the sensation of learning from the actual process of learning. There are two different things that are happening in the brain. And so you have to be sure that both are being satisfied if you want people to learn. That's right. That's exactly right. How did you demonstrate this in the studies that you discussed in your piece? Well, what we did is uh, we took a large introductory physics course and we uh, randomly assigned students to two different sections. In one section, students were learning the physics using a highly effective, highly in actually intense form of active learning. And in the other section, students we're learning the same material, the same thing in a traditional lecture style that was, again, very smooth, highly fluent. We uh, did that again the following week. 
but we swept the conditions. So now students that were learning through active learning, now they were exposed to traditional lectures and vice versa. We repeated that in two different courses, in two different years. What we measured is that students consistently learn more in the active learning section. And that, that's not so surprising, right? But also, also, and that's very important to emphasize, is that students also liked the active learning and they also felt that they learned from it. But it just turns out that when you compare it to the clear and smooth traditional lectures, students simply felt that they learned more from them. That's all. Are the students going to be dissatisfied with their learning experience if they want lectures, if they like lectures? Are they going to think that I'm just not getting as much out of this class as the one where I, you know, I get lectures every day? Well, the short answer to that is yes, if that's what they really want, traditional lectures. However, typically by the time you get the first midterm, these students will tell you, oh, okay, when it came time to studying for the midterm, I could see that uh, the active learning was very effective. So when they see evidence of their own learning, that's when they start changing their minds. And you can do that at the beginning of the semester. And in fact, we did that, where you can explain to students what's going to happen during the semester, how they're going to feel. And then what you can do is accelerate that acceptance process, if you will. Mm -hmm. Do you miss lecturing? Yeah. I actually like it. <laughs> all right, Louis. It's awful. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. That's all the time we have today for active learning. But there are several more parts to this article, including one on combining heads and hearts in active learning settings, managing anxiety and stress in students who suddenly have to interact a lot more with students and teachers, and incorporating active learning into the world at large outside the classroom. You can find links to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe there or anywhere to get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.